Hello, welcome to the next in our occasional podcast series uh, with Rowan Hansen and me, Katja Grace, this time on play. Uh, what do we mean by play, Robin? Well, we want to contrast it with work, so we want to include most things people mean by leisure or fun or uh, not work, <laughs> and so it's a big topic. Uh, it includes a lot of includes music, storytelling, uh, art, uh, sport, travel, uh, you know, eating more fancy meals than you need to for your nutrition, uh, having nicer decorations than you need to for uh, your, you know, very, insulation. Very broad, yes. <laughs> sort of the, everything know. good about life. <laughs> well, that's 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 that starts with a very basic puzzle about actually. Well, so basic puzzle. if we divide work in, we divide life into work and play. We do tend to think of play as the things we want and the good stuff, and work is what we have to do to get the play. Yep. That psychologically makes sense, but if you think about us as evolved creatures with various kinds of habits and behavior, then uh, all of our different habits and behavior surely must have been uh, contributing to our adaptive functions. Uh, that is, we evolved various habits of behavior, all of which, if they took time, must have taken away from other things, and the reason why they we're still in existence or still part of our portfolio of, of behaviors is because they contributed in some way to our continued survival and reproduction. So by that presumption, everything we did must have been useful. But why, why are some of them the ones that we psychologically want and the others the ones that we psychologically want to avoid? One, one possibility would be that there, there are various ways to make us do useful things, and one way is to make us enjoy it directly, and another way is to, to make us sort of see that it's useful somehow. Or have well, why not do both? Why not do both for everything? Why not? Why do we not for everything both consciously <laughs> understand why it's useful and enjoy doing it? Yeah. Hmm. Uh, I suppose one theory would be that eventually you would feel that way, but it, it takes time to, to get all of these mechanisms in place. Perhaps it could be that like the more recent things that we've found useful are the ones that we we don't yet enjoy. So by that theory, work would have to be all the things that we need to do that, that our ancestors didn't do. Right. But of course, uh, our ancestors did work. <laughs> Foragers do work. They think of some things as work. Perhaps uh, the things that they thought of as work were the things that they weren't really adapted to. <laughs> you know, so hunter-gatherers hunt and gather, and for them, hunting and gathering is work. <laughs> and uh, they try to do the least amount of work they can get away with, perhaps in some level. Uh, so... You so, uh, we, we do things like hunting and gathering that seem like fun, but perhaps that's just because they're uh, not so important. There often seems to be some, well, well, you've said that everything's important. Often when we directly see that something is important, it makes it more stressful for us. I'm not sure why that would be, because I don't know why it would be useful to be stressed in, okay. in general. So, I mean, this is a big topic, it's an interesting topic, but I think we should start with it's an attitude toward it as, as a puzzle. So we want to collect right. uh, features of this puzzle and then maybe try to put them together as we collect enough of them that we see a pattern. Right. And the puzzle is just... Uh, <laughs> well, one of the basic puzzles is why, uh, why we like play and don't like work. Uh, another is why we 
are res reluctant to acknowledge the functions that play has. That is, we, we can abstractly, as academics or intellectuals, think about some of the functions that play has. If we take a person playing and we point out that their play could have that function, they're usually resistant to that explanation for the behavior. They say, no, no, I'm not doing it for that reason. I like this. That's why I'm doing it. <laughs> Sure, it's not just that uh, the, the functions you suggest for play are particularly like cynical and uh, well, that unpleasant could be. ones for them. That could be. Then the, then the question might be, why do the functions of play that we academics and intellectuals come up with, why do they seem more cynical than the functions of not of work? Uh, what, what sort of functions of play do people come up with? Uh, well, play uh, produces social bonding with other people. Uh, we signal mm. our various kinds of abilities through play, like through music we show our coordination and voice, uh, through sport we show our athleticism. Uh, so those are some of the fun. Obviously, in addition, uh, play often is ways of practicing, exploring a range of things in, safe, in a safe environment. I mean, clearly animals, young animals play in the sense of, uh, you know, pred young predators will practice hunting and practice chasing each other and practice fighting and things like that. So certainly there must be some element of that in our play, but it doesn't look like most of adult play hmm. is like that. True. Um, these things don't sound very cynical either. Well, the, the doing things to show off, I think, tends okay, to be somewhat yeah. cynical. Um, also doing things for social bonds. Right, doing explicitly <laughs> for bonds. Bonds are just supposed to happen as a side effect of doing other things you enjoy together. So yeah. if you and I enjoy hiking, we go hiking together and we talk about we don't we love the woods. And as a side effect of hiking through the woods, we end up bonding with each other. But we don't say, gee, I sure feel like I'm bonding with you a lot today as we're hiking along through the woods. That's we sort of awkward. It seems like we can always go that far, depending on how awkward the people are to begin with. So, so we have several puzzles we've identified so far. One is that uh, we like work, play over work. Another is that we don't like to talk about many of the apparent functions of play. Uh, another might be that uh, in our society, most people's status comes mostly from their work, but the people who get their status from play-like things get the highest status of all. So, for instance? So, uh, you know, most people like to do some athletic sport in their free time, but the people who can be athletes as professionals, they can have higher status. People like to be musicians in their, as a hobby time. Uh, very few people can afford to be professional musicians, but the best professional musicians are simply, you know, among the most okay. high-status famous people of all. Artists, too, I suppose. Right. Artists, storytellers, yep. um, <laughs> even politicians in a sense that we, a lot of us sort of do some sort of politics in our free time in terms mm -hmm. of talking about what we think the best policy is and trying to convince our associates that they, they should agree with our politics or something. So politicians tend to have... Mm, I don't know. <laughs> it sounds like it could be a counterexample. But Maybe. Okay. Yeah. okay. Who, who else is like super famous? Um, I mean, there, are, there are some super famous people for... More work, work like right. So if we think about f the most famous work people, they tend to be people who seem to have the most power, income, control. And who do you have in mind? Uh, Bill Gates, uh, Barack Obama, okay. uh, you know, yep. people, uh, Steve Jobs even, okay. who might be somewhat different. Uh, but still, when we think about you know status from work, it's having a high income or being associated with things that are controlling, even being a teacher, a lawyer. Uh, doctor. What about what about very famous scientists? Uh, so scientists are somewhat famous. Uh, well, they're, yeah. yes, and they some of them are very famous, <laughs> right? <laughs> they are few. famous in part. I mean, I think many people, not that many, but many people like to do something like science in their free time. They mm -hmm. like to like buy science books and read about it and yeah. talk and about it. it. So it's like, 
Something like you about. come up with that explanation for just about anything. There are some people who enjoy it. Well, like we could take accounting. I mean, <laughs> a lot of people get paid well to do accounting, and they have a high status because they have a well-paying, secure job. But there aren't very many people who like to do accounting in their free time. And there's almost and the fame of, that you can get as an accountant is, is limited by the fact that you, you might be well paid, but just, nobody's going to be talking about you in their free time much. There's not going to be sure. a, an accounting Olympics or a, an accounting game show where the, they pick the best accountant or something like that. <laughs> accountant is sort of extreme and it's like being known for being boring. <laughs> right. So uh, that's, that's a related concept, the, the concept of boredom. So uh, yes, how's that related? The, well, people tend to think of work as boring and yep. play as fun. And yep. so we're trying to take apart these concepts. Uh, and so... You know, it could be that that's just the same thing to say, but maybe our concept of boredom is a little more specific and something we understand better. Now, sometimes people choose as play things where they have an element of work in them, where they they, they choose a hobby. Say, I don't know, maybe they're going to make a build a ship in a bottle or something. Yeah. And there are portions of that task that are often somewhat tedious yep. or boring. But somehow it's still play because they chose the task themselves. It doesn't have any apparent overt function. And they get some enjoyment out of the, you know, they, they choose when they work on it and how much and which thing they do and which kind of ship they do. And, you know, so, so there's, there's an interesting range of things. And it's also more interesting that a lot of times when people have free time and they call it leisure, they often structure it in somewhat stressful and work-like ways. So if you think about people going on a one-week vacation to Europe, yeah. it's, they talk about it ahead of time as if they're looking forward to a great time of leisure and play, and then they schedule every hour ahead of time, and then they feel in a rush to make sure they go do the next thing, and then they do the next thing, and they, they want to ensure they did all the right things that other people would have done. <laughs> and by the time they get back, they're more exhausted than they would have been. <laughs> Does this have some particular implication, or are we just collecting like odd facts at this point? Uh, I'm happy to, if you want to leap on one of these facts and draw a conclusion, I'm happy for you to uh, speculate. Go right ahead. Oh, no, I didn't, I, I didn't mean that I had one. I was just wondering whether I was missing one that you were trying to make or whether... Uh, no, I was just, just collecting, collecting some okay. of these interesting puzzles. <laughs> yeah. uh, so so a, lot of, a lot of play things are goal-directed. It seems like people like to have something that they're trying to do. <laughs> right, while, so, while they're, uh, so, so and, you, know, you might just say people are naturally goal-directed. We like to sort of do things with a goal in mind. But with play, it seems that near goals are okay, but far goals are more constrained. That is, uh, you can say, you know, we're hiking and so we want to take the path to the right as opposed to the left because the left one might be muddy and that might take too long. And the right one has some pretty flowers, we'll see. So you, you can talk in terms of those sort of near goals of a particular hike, but if you can't talk about, yes, but why do we go hiking at all? You can't say we want to take the left path because it might be steeper and then it might be harder for us and we'll bond better and things like that. Right. We, we might fall and I, I would have to grab and help you up and then we bond from that. That's just sort of not something you're supposed to say. Right. Uh, hmm. so, uh, we think people just like having goals in general, but in this case, the, the goals that we pretend to have are not the ones that uh, we actually have. Well, they seem a little, that is, they, they aren't that plausible. That is, the goals people say about aren't that evolutionarily ad adaptation plausible. If we want to add in more, you know, if we want to get more t to a sort of adaptation grounding, we have to add in more steps or explan explanations. Goals so. like getting to the top of the mountain and not. Right. Uh, <laughs> Very, right, so bonding with an associate and impressing people with your prowess or something, those at least make more sense in the evolutionary sense. Right. Um, but, but those are things you're not really supposed to talk about. 
Uh, why is that? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> that's uh, so. I mean, it's an interesting that there are a, a number of things that we do with each other that uh, we aren't supposed to talk about, and uh, functions of our behavior. So, as you know, I've sort of outlined a Homo Hippocrates account of human behavior that says that a lot of our behavior was designed to be covert. That is, we uh, we develop norms that are supposed to repress uh, aggression and dominance and bragging and things like that, and then we. De immediately developed uh, ways to coordinate to evade those norms just below the surface, and so um, a lot of our covert behavior is uh, uh, shaped to uh, be deniable. All right. So, and then so therefore that that hypothesis suggests that many of our play activities are covertly achieving some goals that we are we would overtly not be proud of, and that might even violate norms like bragging. Right. But things like making friends, uh, <laughs> bonding better, uh, why, why would they need to be hidden? It's a good question. Um, so, so foragers did sometimes have a norm, which is hard to imagine they can enforce it strongly, that you aren't supposed to have strong sub-coalitions of the band. So, so if there's a band of 20 people, we're all together, and you know we don't form sub-cliques. But of course we do, but we, we can't be too overt about sub-cliques. Okay. We should all be friendly with each other, and, and we don't you know, take... Right. Like if, if, if you're in charge of something, then of some particular part of what you're doing, you should be fair to all the rest of us and how you treat all of us. You're not supposed to favor your friends or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so there's common sort of norms like that. Hmm. But I'm not sure that goes far enough. Yeah. If, if someone's uh, quite overtly trying to make friends with you, you might fear that they're uh, particularly needy or Right. Dangerous. But then why wouldn't they be yeah. needy or dangerous covertly? Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm thinking that's the, that's the kind of signal that you get if they do behave that way, I think. Right. I, I do think that um, if we're in the habit of doing a lot of things covertly, then anybody who tries to do it overtly instead will show a lack of covert capacity. That's true. So that confuses everything. <laughs> right. And they'll also perhaps show a uh, sort of lack of knowing the right thing to do and, and, right. and what you're supposed to be doing, and also perhaps a lack of sort of really a sort of natural spontaneous feeling right so so if mm -hmm. if you're designed to say like certain people as friends and then feel friendly about them and warm and and you know relaxed around them right. then if you seem to be trying to make their friends but you don't seem relaxed yeah. <laughs> you don't seem to actually like them and to 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 be you know smiling and, and arms open sort of expressions then they might plausibly think well he's trying to pretend <laughs> to be my friend but he doesn't really feel it yeah and, and then if you if you do feel it, well, then you wouldn't need to consciously mm. think about it. So and feeling it would make you do it the covert ways, right? All in sort of the natural ways too. So mm. it wouldn't all be about being covert. But if there, but you know, in general, if there's, if you have a, a, if you have an intuitive capacity and a subconscious capacity that's already to do something, and then you do it some other way, yeah, then that raises a flag. Well, why didn't you just do it the usual way? Right. <laughs> Uh, right. So just like if you were walking along and you just walked the natural, ordinary way, well, that's strange. If you decide to like put one foot in front of each other in a straight line, well, yeah. Sarah, you can say, well, why are you walking that way? <laughs> You're apparently putting a lot of conscious effort into walking this way. Surely you must have a reason. Now, maybe you'll convince us you're just being playful and it's a cute thing to do at the moment and we'll believe you, but we still, if, there's, if there was another suspicious explanation, we would be start to think about that. So right. when you're making a friend, maybe uh, consciously planning to make a friend, 
seem suspiciously like you don't really like them. You just need them for as a work colleague or want a promotion or whatever it is. Right. So, th so this is uh, sort of added on top of uh, whatever it is that, that means we're more covert about these things. I mean, it's just right. like, wh whatever is what people usually do, you can't do different things to that or you'll send some sort of signal of... Right, but it's in addition this hypothesis that some things we do are come so naturally to us that we have subconscious routines and the natural thing to do would be to just to let the subconscious take it over. Right. right. But the additional fact that we are reluctant to be conscious about it, that requires a little more explanation, I think. Because hmm. a lot of things... When you're driving, for example, yep. you know, once you get used to driving, you, you're so unconscious about driving. But if somebody points out something about your driving and they ask you to pay attention to the left mirror or something, you don't go crazy like, no, I can't consciously pay attention to the left mirror. <laughs> You'll sit and say, I'm not, I'm not trying to drive. It's kind of, <laughs> right. I wasn't driving. I was just like moving this wheel around. It seemed like fun. <laughs> right. So, so many of our activities, we, we can smoothly move between our unconscious habitual behaviors and our conscious planning. Mm. Many of them, you think? I think so. Yeah, I guess. And so for these friendship and play and mating even behaviors, they're more of an exception to that. So uh, it's more when you start to be conscious, it's suspicious. Hmm. Uh, raises red flags. But I do think these are more situations where you might pretend to fake it. So you're less off, you're very few people will fake driving. <laughs> but you might fake being friendly. You might fake being you know, likable or something or liking something. Right. So you know, if you're trying to get in somebody's pants, you might pretend to be friendly toward them, but maybe you just want sex or something, and they are suspicious of your pretend right. friendly behavior. Or similarly, with a work colleague, you might pretend to be friendly with a work colleague, and they might think, oh, they like me, and then they might worry, no, they just want you know, my good word on this project or something. Yeah. But there are different kinds of pretending, even, like there's the sort of conscious, explicit pretending, which is perhaps what people are most wary of, but then there's also just like self-delusion and thus right. pretending. <laughs> right. Presumably you can't admit to yourself you don't like this friend. Right. So. But even then you might expect some of these clues to come across mm. where um, you, you're somewhat forced. Perhaps. Yeah. Um, Makes sense. Although, I mean, apparently we aren't. So for example, laughter is commonly, so laughter and smiling is commonly associated with fun. Yes. Right, and these are both considered to be uh, ways in which we are showing that we are relaxed and comfortable and at ease and having a good time well, yeah. and enjoying so, things. Laughter is a big enough mystery for its own <laughs> podcast. <laughs> yes, but but for for these purposes, I was just noticing that you know when people look at laughter, say at the office, they'll find yeah. it's usually the boss telling some jokey thing and everybody else laughing. So apparently, it's okay to laugh at the boss's jokes or mm -hmm. humorous remarks. Wait, it, uh, are you sure this is what, how it usually goes? I think so, yeah. Well, I mean, oh. bosses are left with more than other people. Okay. You know, so there's some level of... You know, so clearly you are, at some modest sincerity level, actually thinking the boss is funnier. Right. <laughs> Which presumably is part because he has this dominance relationship and you're showing a submission of, of, of acceptance of the boss and acceptance of the dominance role. I think you certainly see that sort of thing in friendship groups. Like, right? He's a dominant person in a friendship group, and they tend to tell people what we're going to do next, and that people like laugh at what they say and, and accept their dominance at some level. Right. I mean, like, uh, one person can tell a joke and no one laughs, and if like <laughs> someone with higher status tells the same joke, then everyone laughs. Right. I mean, uh, but it, it could be to do with their mannerisms as well, because of that. Right. But often, if you'll ask people in that friendship group if any of them is dominant, if anybody is higher status within the group than others, they will deny it. Right. One of those, and they will even deny that they do various status moves in terms of you know submitting and dominating each other in, within friendships. But e but in fact, they do that all the time. 
So it's another example of... Anyway, are you sure people usually deny that? It seems to me like there's a, there's a mixture. Like some people deny that there's like such a thing as status at all, <laughs> uh, or that they've ever noticed such a thing. Um, and other people seem to be fairly aware of it. Well, the existence of status is different than within my friends group. Okay. <laughs> people are much more reluctant <laughs> to say, within my group of friends, we're equals. We treat each other as <laughs> equals. Okay. That's, right. that's right. very usual. It would be quite unusual for people to say, no, George is above me in, our, in my friendship with George. <laughs> <laughs> I'm below George. George is above. <laughs> he is the dominant friend in our, pair, in our friendship. That's, yes, that's so really quite an unusual thing for people to say. But in <laughs> fact, such things is the usual case. Within a pair of friends, one will be more dominant. Hmm. And even within a couple, presumably. In fact, you know, I mean, this is pretty sensitive territory. It's the standard thing to say that we are a couple and we're both equal. But in fact, in couples, there's usually some sort of a dominance relationship. And that's certainly not the sort of thing you want to admit or say out loud. That there is in your relationship? Yeah, ah. right. Hmm. That you don't want to say that you are the dominant one or that you are the submissive <laughs> one. Either way is usually a no-no. But in fact, that this does seem to be common, so right. So it's another example of how these sorts of status relationships and you know the behaviors we have that support those functions, status performed any functions, is something we're not supposed to talk about. Hmm. Um, so so that fits in nicely with your Hippocrates theory, right? I think so. Just that in general, we're not allowed to admit it to any kind of dominance existing. Right, although at, at work, in work context, we are more willing to admit dominance, interestingly. Yeah. And status, relative status. Yep. Uh, so so, so uh, there is this interesting mapping between the, the ways in which we are hypocritical and we refuse to admit things and uh, the many play activities. So at work, we're, we are more willing to admit the functions of our behavior, we're more willing to accept status relationships, more willing to admit that we're bored with some of the things we do. Hmm. Uh, and, but at home and at play, often we're not supposed to say those things, hmm. even though they seem to apply. That is, you know, many hobbies are actually boring some yeah, of the time. They're boring for the people who do them. Well, I mean, you know, they're, they're, they can be boring in some objective sense, but they still might enjoy them because at least it's my choice and at least it's my hobby. What are your hobbies? At least I'm controlling my hobbies. Well, so I'm one of the luckier people who can blend my hobbies more into my work, but certainly in addition to the blended areas. I mean, I might have some things I just do as work more, like yeah. teaching, for example, right. grading exams. <laughs> I hate grading exams, so that's definitely work. Okay. Or I like going and giving talks, but I don't like flying on the plane. So the flying on the plane bit is work. Okay. <laughs> but, but, but what um, do you do that's just, just for... So I like oh. to read the newspaper, say. I okay. like to play board games. I like to go for a bike ride. Okay. Uh, are those things uh, tedious? Uh, they can be at times. That is, uh, you know, biking can be tedious in terms of, <laughs> you know, pedal, 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 <laughs> round and round. But, you know, it feels nice that you're in the fresh air and that you're getting some exercise. That you chose the path when you did it. And you don't have to be doing something else. So at least it's a different tedium, a change of tedium. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's nice. Um, you know, other chores I might do, do the dishes, mow the lawn. Wait, and these, these are work. work. These right. are work. And so they're somewhat similar in a sense to biking, which is a... Really? <laughs> you know, in this, mowing the lawn, you're just going along doing a physical task repetitively. Biking, you're going along doing a physical task repetitively. Yeah, I guess. Uh, but but it, it one is work and one is play. It seems like you enjoy the cycling more. I mean, like, yeah, sometimes there are some... Tedious bits, but also you're enjoying being outside and all that. I'm outside when I'm mowing, of course. But, but are you enjoying it in the same way? I mean, I know that you go to nicer places to, to ride. Right. So I, you know, 
I think partly is just that the fact that something's worked means that you feel like you're not supposed to be enjoying it, <laughs> or you're supposed to be in a resentful sort of mode about it. Oh, okay. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> you know, I could almost imagine that if I, if there was a common lawn around that I didn't have a lawn. And you went out to mow the lawn that you might enjoy it. <laughs> you could almost imagine somebody having a hobby of mowing. Almost. Well, that's some correct. people do have gardening hobbies, yeah, and true. that's somewhat, somewhat close. But so then, I mean... Maybe they enjoy these things more than you do. That's why I was asking about your hobbies, because right. it seems plausible that most people actually enjoy the things they do as hobbies. Right, but we do want to look at the causality direction. That is, <laughs> it might be that because something's a hobby that you enjoy it, yeah, it and be. that because something is work that you don't so much enjoy it. You know, that is, right. you might at least have the attitude of resentment and, and, right. a, and a habit of answering the question, do you like this? No, I want to stop, even though you might actually enjoy it. So, yeah. I mean... So it is somewhat of a puzzle. A lot of a lot of people, especially in our world, manage to find jobs where most of the time on the job, it's not. It's pretty good. <laughs> they're doing something they they've gotten good at. They like doing something they're good at. They you know there's a variety of things they're doing, yeah. and it's you know it's an enjoyable life on the on the job. Hmm. So yet they feel this need to sort of resent the fact that they have to work, and then to go out of their way to pick something different on their hobby time and make sure it's like as a different in contrast, and then call the other thing fun and call that work. Right, so uh, if if most of the difference between uh, work and play being fun and boring was just because one of them's work and one of them's play, then we'd expect to see people do mostly the same kinds of tasks uh, as work and as play, perhaps, or like that, and they would enjoy them sometimes and not other times. I mean, like, that, that some people would do things for play that other people do for work, and there'd still be yeah. a big difference in how much they enjoy them. But you pr- you'd probably still expect to see a big difference in which things people do as which. I think you do see some, some things like that. Like a lot of the things that used to be considered work and are now no longer required, people do for play. Right, like say cooking. Shooting animals. Uh, right. Or hiking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was the first one I thought of. <laughs> right. So, um, so certainly, I mean, one of the things to notice is that our modern industrial world just requires a much wider range of activities to be done as work than right. our ancestors comfortably got used to enjoying. So right. there is just a wide range of weird tasks that need to be done. And so people are paid to do them to get them to do them, and they aren't, you know, they aren't literally what they would do in their free time, certainly a lot of that. Right. Um, no one seems to do paperwork for fun. No. I remember reading about like kids who do like pretend office well, when they're true. kids and they get a little <laughs> pile of paper and they move things from one pile to the other. <laughs> so they can be like dad at the office or whatever. Hmm, okay. <laughs> I know adults maybe. Right? Although people might volunteer, say, and become a secretary at the church or at a hmm. club or something and they will do some administrative work in their volunteer time. Now you could say, well, they're volunteering is different than play, right? That's an yeah. interesting intermediate thing. Uh, because it's voluntary? Well, Right. More. So, you know, because one of the, you know, if you look at the definitions of play, they, they put the voluntary nature of it as an important part of the definition of play. Everything's voluntary in some <laughs> Right, sense. exactly. So you have to say, well, yeah. relative to what? What's the. Right. Uh, so. Just call it work where they're being paid in some kind of um, <laughs> benefit other than money directly to themselves. I guess, but then you could say that about pretty much all play. That's all, <laughs> all play is paying some benefit. That's the whole point. Yeah. There must be some point to it. So. Indeed. You know, like most most play requires some energy, attention, you know, motion, 
and often like some wearing down of materials, like if you jog, your shoes wear down, hmm. right? So I mean, there's, there's so at literal levels work going into most play. Right. Ah. So one way of working out what the what the function is of this kind of thing would be to, to ask what happens if someone just doesn't play at all. <laughs> right. So an, so another source of interesting observations about play is what do we, how do we think about people who play badly or don't play as much, right? <laughs> so there's a standard thing, you know, all work, no play makes Joe a dull boy or something. <laughs> Jack, Jack a dull boy, that's it. Really? Right, so um, are people who play less, more dull? Well, I think by definition, I mean, I mean <laughs> if, if, you don't, if you don't play at all, then you're dull to other people because they like playing with people. So another interesting observation of I mean, it's, it's less puzzling, but it's, it's worth pondering, yeah. is the fact that the people who are the most famous, that we all admire the most, yeah. are people who do something many of us do as, a, as play and do it for their work and do it very well. Yeah. And those people usually are very dull in the sense that they really devote all of their time <laughs> to doing that play well. I mean, like an Olympic athlete, right? Yeah. So, yes, we, you and I like to go and run and play basketball on the weekends because it's different. And, and it's, <laughs> yeah, we well, love that. You know, <laughs> many people do because yeah. it's different and, and fun in that road. But if you are an Olympic you know, runner or something, right. you are out there all the time running, which, you know, after a while, it's got to be pretty boring <laughs> in terms of a... It wouldn't make them a very fun person to talk to. Right, and they aren't, in fact. And so that's one of the dirty secrets about most you know, famous athletes or musicians. You have an interview with them and you try to spice them up and make their life sound interesting. But in fact, they tend to be relatively boring people exactly because they really have devoted themselves <laughs> to doing one thing really well. Hmm. And it's the similar truth for, you know, devote yourself to a business or devote yourself to an act, act, being a famous scientist or whatever else it is. The people who are the, the very best tend to really devote themselves to it. And so they have less free time and they are like, you know, they, they have seen fewer TV shows, they, they've heard few less music, okay. they know. So it sounds like uh, doing a variety of stuff makes you more interesting to hang out with, at least for a time. Right. Uh, so playing in general more may help you do a, a greater variety of things. Um, right. It's one way that... Actually, I remember, uh, I remember I had a blog post where I was complaining about people who were so obsessed with being well-rounded. That's right that they had to make sure they knew something about travel and they knew something about TV and they knew something about art and they knew something about furniture and something about cooking and they knew something, you know, yeah. something about birds and they just felt like they had to know a bit about everything and they filled their entire life with this chore of making sure they were well-rounded and knew something about almost everything that most people would talk about at Wait, least. So why is this so terrible? I mean, it seems like they probably enjoy it. Well, uh... Does it? I mean, they feel proud of it. They feel accomplished. They they feel good about themselves. They think they are good people for having done so. Yeah. It does seem many of them. Yeah, they are just you know they've got a checklist, so they're going through it. And yeah, but is your criticism that they're not enjoying it enough, or is your criticism that you don't like them, or that they're not useful for society? My fundamental criticism is I find them boring. Ah, that's a pretty fundamental criticism. Right, so, so if I want to be, for me to be interested by you, yeah. you need to be something different. You know, if you know the same thing about TV shows and you No, know, I know music. a different thing about furniture and a different thing about birds and so on than anyone else you've ever met. Doesn't that make me interesting? 
No, not necessarily. <laughs> I like somebody who picks some smaller set of things and really gets into them. And then if I can talk to them, they, uh, they know a lot and have interesting things to say about that set of things. If I know all about furniture. Well, you've got to find some interesting things to tell me <laughs> about furniture. But, yeah. So often knowing yeah. several things will help let you find connections between things. So if you just know about furniture, maybe you can't relate furniture to other things. So I think you might be somewhat odd in preferring people who know mostly about one thing. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> sure. I mean, We're knowing a lot about some things, at least, who specialize, who get right. in depth in something. Right. Uh, I mean, it would, it's actually my advice for many uh, young academics, uh, young intellectuals, just as long as they're throwing advice out there, <laughs> yeah, you may be like that, which is, you know, many people go to college and they um, take standard classes and they feel like they know standard things yeah. and they've never gone into any one thing in great depth. Okay. And, and there's just a lot you will learn about the nature of knowledge and the nature of the world, the nature of expertise, if you take any one thing and just go into it in a lot of depth. So, for example, you might t take a project as a class, and many, many college students don't, and you should. You should just take one class where you go and do an independent study on one very particular thing that okay. there isn't a class in, that you study that in great depth, and then you, you come back with some understanding of a very particular thing. Right. Um, and you will learn a lot in that process. You will start to see the difference between what knowledge looks like when it's packaged up for a textbook <laughs> and what it looks like in the dirty, messy details when you're down to a specialized thing where there's only a few people and they're not that good hmm. and, and things don't hang together so well, right? Right. Um, and, but you're still in academia, not like, not like so in-depth that you would like go out and do something in the real world. That, that's also <laughs> true. That is, even if you have an inclination for engineering or writing or something else, right, you, you know, doing one big writing project, yeah. you will learn a lot of important things that you won't learn by doing a lot of short, hmm. small essays. I see. Uh, doing one big computer programming project, you will learn a bunch of things that you don't learn by doing a bunch of, you know, week, weekend homeworks. Right. <laughs> uh, you, uh, you know, even if the particular thing you do in that project doesn't end up being useful, you will just learn seeing something about something very specific. Hmm. Um, or, it. You go ahead. Oh, you go first. No, just I, like a business too. Yeah, if you know somebody who's running a business, to go do an internship. Ma many college students have never like worked in any sort of business. They don't really right. know what business is like. Go take an internship or a job in any business, but like get into the details. Don't just like be the receptionist at a fast food place. You know, okay. work at a small business and see behind the counter, see see in the back room, see the actual process of how it runs. Okay, so so after you learn a great deal about this specific thing, uh, is it like generalizable to anything else? Many of the very basic things you learn will be generalizable. That is, they won't generalize greatly, but given how confused most people are at this stage in their life <laughs> about how the world works, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> they will learn a lot of very things that later considered trite and obvious <laughs> that they didn't quite realize because they haven't actually been in an actual place doing something. Huh. How old were you when you first were in a place doing something? I guess I took some odd jobs in uh, college. Right. Uh, I guess I was a gardener in high school, but that wasn't especially <laughs> detailed. But at least I saw how a job worked. But <laughs> wasn't very behind the scenes. But then you know I, I did a engineering job, you know summer jobs in uh, college, and, and I learned some things hmm. about how a small business ran. So I did a job at uh, a place that made uh, X-ray lamps for chip hmm. manufacturers in uh, Silicon Valley, and I saw how the factory floor worked, and I saw how the engineering department worked, and I, they came and gave me, okay, here's a bunch of, here's a bunch of leftover lamps that we got from our competitors, that our suppliers 
from our competitors, just mark down and see how long each one lasts, and then we can get a histogram of how long their lives last, so we can compare it to how long our lamps last. Okay. And I realized that's really how they do it. <laughs> it's that low tech. Hmm. You know, you have some sense of how some of these things actually work. Yeah. Um, so we've got somewhat off topic. Yes, we have. Um, sorry. <laughs> but that was interesting. Uh, <laughs> Yes, we have. So the subject uh, was play, and uh, we were collecting some of the mysteries of play, some of the, some of the yep. uh, strange things, strange things about play. Um, right. And uh, I wanted to relate it to uh, sort of my future speculations or uh, prediction analyses, because my best guess about the next major era of whole brain emulation is a world of much more work and much less play. So by much more work and much less play, you mean just more of the things we do will be like unpleasant, or uh, will be less adapted to them, or... No, uh, well, they will be more adapted. Like there are different, uh, right. there are different components of this. There's like, there's what you enjoy, and there's how useful things are, and there's whether it's useful for like, some kind of social thing, or something that you're not really aware of, or whether it's useful for explicit things. Yeah. So, so in our world, you know, one of the key concepts between work and play is whether you get paid for it. Right, that's true. <laughs> and while there are intermediate things, that is, people choose things, say they choose a job that's more enjoyable, that pays less, Quite often, especially men, will pick the job that pays the most, even if they don't like it so much because they really want to be paid the most, because yep. they can get a lot of rewards, say, impressing right. women, uh, by being paid a lot. Mm. Okay, so uh, in, in that sort of approximation, I, the, I would think I would say that our dis, our next love, next era descendants would spend a larger fraction of their time working for income and tr and do picking the jobs that make the most money, and uh, but then of course having a selection process by which they become more adapted to that situation and, and less, less grading on them as we do. But it raises the issue of how bad a scenario is that. Okay, but wait. Uh, you didn't explain why, why they would be working more than now. Oh, because it's a very... So the scenario is the whole brain emulations are very competitive, that it's easy to make lots of copies of them, so the copies can, can basically end up competing with each other, so there's just a lot more competition, there's a lot more selection potential of taking a small number of humans and making trillions of copies of them, so there's so just, you'll, there's you'll just a lot. You'll have to be willing to work like almost as much as possible in order to like earn a living wage. Right, that is uh, up to the point where you are productive, of course, if you work more right. hours and you, you actually produce less, that, right. that's, that doesn't work. But there'll so. be people who are as like productive as possible. Uh, and that will be... Right, and they will be picked. So right. it's a world of people, you know, for where the, the most productive in terms of, you know, raw prod output per sort of time their mind spends thinking is yeah. the highest. Okay. So uh, that's the scenario, and the scenario would then produce a lot of work relative to play. Many people would see that as a horror, uh, as a hell of some sort, because work is a hell by definition to them. And so it's interesting <laughs> to pause and think about the way in which we celebrate play and we integrate work. Yep. So in our world, actually, on average, the average adult spends 24 hours a week working, really? in the US at least, hmm. which is quite small. So out of 168 yeah. hours in a week, <laughs> yes. right? we actually spend quite a small fraction of time working, yet we like, we, we lament it and we complain about it a lot. And that's, you know, this, this great imposition and burden. And hmm. uh, But it's really a relatively small fraction of our overall time. Uh, the, the average time. Right. I suspect maybe the people who spend a lot of time denigrating it are the ones who, who do more of it. Uh, right. And the, the ones who, who don't do any work are, are less like the, the front of the cultural uh, expression. Okay. Perhaps. Perhaps. But still, overall, we're really quite a leisure 
intensive society. Yeah. We should be pretty happy with that if leisure is a good thing. But, right. you know, honestly, that 24 hours of work is producing most of what our society will be known for later in the future. Or, yeah. the, the, you know, the, the cities, the buildings, the great inventions, the accomplishments even. The stuff that the, we enjoy the rest of the time. <laughs> right. So. The TV shows, etc. Yep. Most of that's being made in that 24 hours a week of work. And uh, the people who are the best at producing, the best workers we know, typically are not so complaining about work. They find it rewarding. They, they feel it an intense joy in, in getting into the work and getting it done. Right. Uh, and so if those are the people we copy in the future, because they're the most productive, yeah. then it might not be such a bad world at all. But it, it, if you think that work, by definition, is, is like bad, and a life full of work is, is a like worthless life, then, uh, then this future seems horrible. Hmm. Yes. Well, the fact that uh, work produces a lot of stuff to enjoy at other times uh, probably doesn't strongly argue against working all the time being a horrible life. Right, that's correct. <laughs> we need to know some other things about you know, what happens when we see people working. So I, I think I posted a couple months ago on a movie called uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. I think you did. And uh, it's about this guy who's really a very good sushi chef, and uh, he's apparently, if you watch the movie, you know, completely obsessed with working on sushi. Yep. And you know, to many of us, what he does all the time looks kind of boring. <laughs> he's really obsessed about minute details of the preparation of sushi hmm. that to us might be as boring as looking in an in accountant's uh, you know, sheet of expenses being tracked. Uh, but to him, it's, it's a life he thinks is worth living. Now, he could be just deceived and a boring person, but we celebrate him. And we have a whole movie about him, because often we celebrate these people who, who do art really yep. well. Yep. But it's not clear that their minute-to-minute -minute enjoyment of their work is any more than, than an accountant's, if they're somebody who's really into accounting. Right. Um, yeah. I, I'm not sure how you go about deciding if someone else's life is worth living, <laughs> if they think it's worth living. Uh, I mean... I could just decide that it's not, but I just don't value it. But, uh, right. I don't know. Uh, right. I mean, partly what we. I mean, if you look at some, whether people do it, if they were do, could do it for free, I guess. Right. That's often whether people, uh, judgment people make. Well, if you live that life, if you do that activity, if, if you were independently wealthy, then then we think your life must be worth living. <laughs> See. And then that sort of implicitly criticizes anything you have to do for work. Maybe isn't. Right. But. Uh, so then if, if you had to do this and you weren't paid for it, but you wouldn't do it for not pay, then your life wouldn't be worth living, it seems like. But if you were paid enough to make it worthwhile, then doesn't it push it back up for worth living? If you're paid enough, right. I mean, if... if you and just, you get to use the money to for something. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, by the, by the same grounds. I mean, if, if just making sushi on its own, you would do without money, that makes your life worth living. Then if uh, making sushi and getting money you would do you know, voluntarily. <laughs> right. right. Uh, yep. So I don't know, this future doesn't horrify me very much. But it may horrify many of our listeners. And, uh, and even if they don't agree with me about my speculations about what's likely to happen or whether it's good, it still raises this issue of play in our environment and you know whether we are too into play relative to work. I mean, the 24 out of 168 hours, i got to say, it seems like remarkably small fraction given how much value we all get out of the work. Right. Because uh, a, more, a more horrifying future is one where uh, like people feel compelled to work a lot but they don't seem to enjoy it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. if they're just very stressed and yes. you, know, it's, you, 
can imagine that happening where like they value staying alive or whatever. <laughs> sure. And so they so we, we spend all have all the time miserably trying to right. We all we all know stories of sort of horrific societies of of you know concentration camp workers or right. uh, people on a death march across the mountains or whatever and. Uh, moment to moment they seem miserable but they of course keep trotting along because it's their only chance of surviving right um you know certainly happy to grant that there are these extreme scenarios of, of lives not temporarily worth living but uh for, but do you think that must be temporary it, i don't know it's unclear to me what what determines like uh how much sort of pleasure and suffering creatures are likely to have that's true um, i mean sometimes people argue that uh terrible suffering but only small pleasures should evolve because like bad things are more important somehow but I, I'm not well, sure about it's this. not uh, you know so obviously say the, the typical animal uh, a fox say yeah you know most of his life he is uh, you know some mildly hungry and mildly tired and mildly watching out for something to eat and right. he's got a few wonderful moments of delicious yummy sinking his teeth into something and uh, some nicer some not quite so nice just moments of anticipation just before that when he's almost going to grab the rabbit yep. and then other points in life where he's like feeling very cold and perhaps to freeze to death or perhaps his mm. foot is stuck in something and he's in terrible pain trying to get the foot out but you know yeah those are pretty small fractions of the fox's life overall yes so but uh you know certainly there are moment when the fox is about to be eaten by some larger cougar say right then that moment is pretty terrible but overall overall the fox probably has a, you know a, a life worth living and that the most of the moments are mildly i mean he, he is adapted he that's the kind of way he's supposed to live that that's right. he's, he's but his I mean, life i i don't know why it should come out anywhere near kind of neutral like why 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 shouldn't people only be driven by pain say and just like never experience pleasure or, or vice versa uh something that I haven't thought enough about is... Well, I mean, I think it's because, you know, pain and pleasure have a whole bunch of other specific correlates in how our minds right. are structured. Yep. You know, while the absence of pain in, in principle could produce any activity that pleasure could produce, <laughs> right. in practice, no, it can't. <laughs> right. In fact, the, the ways in which pleasure is wired to things will, in fact, induce some kinds of things that the absence of pain won't induce. Right, okay. And, you know, we, just, we have to learn a lot more about those yep. <laughs> details, but it does seem like uh, there's, there's just a big difference there. Like, like, for example, the, the left and right brains, I understand, one of the brain is, one part of the brain, like the left part of the brain, is more in charge of making overt plans to do positive things. Okay. And the right-hand side part of the brain is more sitting in the background watching out for things that could go wrong. Okay. <laughs> and ready to jump up and say, nope, <laughs> watch, watch, watch for that thing. Okay. And so, so we do, I mean, that's sort of, again, a positive and negative split. Right. One part of the brain is like making positive plans and doing things that if, if those plans are achieved, will achieve a positive feeling. And, and the other part's like watching out for negatives, right? Mm -hmm. But those two parts of the brain are really structured quite differently and their right. thought processes notice different things and it's easier, you know. So it seems like to, to predict whether, you know, in the future people would be like mostly motivated by just intrinsically enjoying their uh, so-called work a, a lot or whether they'd be like uh, in a terrible struggle that they just want to survive or something. Um, you can understand that a little better if we knew more about uh, Well, even that division I just gave gives us some ground for optimism. Right. That is, uh, in the past it probably was roughly similarly important to uh, plan positive things like taking the left path versus the right path in front of us or maybe right. chasing that thing we saw, that this path in front of us, chasing that deer or something. 
uh, versus watching out for negative things like you know stepping on a snake or right. <laughs> or a storm or something like that. But the, okay. the negative things were rare but intense when they happened. Right. And maybe you could argue that they were a similar magnitude at least broadly to the small positive things that typically happen every moment of walking another few yards and doing it what you planned and feeling good about it, etc. But in the future, most of these things that our ancestors were watching out for as negative things just won't apply. Right. Because they'll be in a safe industrial world where, where right. there are not famines and wars and rocks falling on you and snakes you step on and right. all these terrible things. They, those Most of those th things are sort of filtered out of the environment because they don't make workers productive. And you're more focused on the positive planning of, you know, running the assembly line, whatever it is you're doing. So, I mean, it's not that there won't be bad things, because I mean, everything is right. relevant to something else, so is it that there won't be, like, uh, particularly bad, un like, unexpected things, or or things that each individual should be looking out for, because someone else has basically organized the environment to be predictable? Or and again, I guess the, the idea is that, I mean, abstractly, minds could be anything, but if we're talking about <laughs> things that used to be human minds, and right, which right. are only <laughs> modestly only modestly modified from what human minds were, yeah. then if human minds had the split between watching out for big bad things of a certain standard, you know, physical pain, uh, predator attack, yeah. you know, freezing to death, right. you know, disease, sickness throwing up, right? There's just a bunch of standard, very negative things that our ancestors had to deal with, and most of those are associated with pain. Yeah. Our minds are hooked up those triggers to pain, naturally, because the kinds of ways in which pain works, it naturally fits these rare but extreme strong events. Right. And then our pleasure centers more are tied to sort of more routine uh, activities of not extreme consequence, but relatively positive consequence. Right. And in the future, it looks like, you know, that's much more like what work is like. So, uh, you know, in our jobs, we could harness, for example, our feeling of positive attitudes or our feelings of pain for <laughs> for making workers pay attention to things, but we don't find it actually very useful to poke them with pain <laughs> to get them to, to do one thing or another on the yeah. job, right? Yes. Usually it's much it's good enough to like, give them some visual clue and have them by social habit learn to pay attention to something and do the right thing in the right circumstance. Actually hooking into the pain centers, you could argue, yes, but it would give an extra urgency and jolt so they would be really sure to do it, but it just doesn't turn out in most work lives that that's very useful for workers to give them that extra jolt of pain so that they were sure to do something. <laughs> well, I mean, it would be fairly socially unacceptable to try this, so But I, even I in places where it is socially work. acceptable, I mean, you know, it looked like places like, you know, North Korea, labor camps, I read a book about that recently, Escape from Camp 14, yep. you read about miserable lives there, they certainly have miserable lives and things that happen, but even, they're mainly if they, if they torture somebody or, or you know, hit them with a whip or something, it's because they failed to do something right. that they were told to do, or they violated a rule, or they yeah. didn't make a quota or something, right. and then you're trying to really pump it into them, hey, you know, we're on the right. line, if you don't do what we say, we're really going to hurt you. Right. right. So that would be more of the negative scenario of the future, if somehow workers could be made more productive, like North Korea labor camp people. Mm -hmm. By, by having punishment, right, right. extreme punishment. So I don't think it's the actual integration of the pain sensor into the work moment. I think it's more right. the periodic torture <laughs> or or, well. or beating that you might get as a threat in order right. to keep you motivated on the job. Right. So it's not so bad because uh, hopefully threats more won't rare. actually happen. <laughs> yeah, so, so it happens right. more rarely, even right. in the North Korea labor camps. It does right. look like they have lives worth living, as far as I can tell. But it, it does. Most, look like it, it does, right? Okay. Most of the time, they're okay. Presumably, uh, they think they have lives worth living. Presumably, right. Yeah, keep, keep 
carry on. They keep carrying on, but not to say that it's a great life, not to say I wouldn't wish these people be freed. <laughs> but still, you know, in the future. So that, that I think, would be more the issue of, of the, you know, the, the periodic threat of a beating or torture or something in order to motivate people mm. would be more the fear, because it does seem like uh, people can be motivated that way. Now, it, it's also does, it also seems like, you know, traditionally it's easier to motivate sort of line workers or sort of very low-skilled workers <laughs> to sort of keep their backs to the plow, <laughs> even when they're tired. But, you know, engineers sure or... <laughs> easier? It could just be that more high-status people were less willing to whip. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> you could look, say, at the history of the Soviet Union or something, or even, you know, Nazi labor camps or something. If you want the workers to do some high-level work, hmm. if you want them to do some engineering for you or some science or some marketing or something, yeah. it's less clear that it works to, like, torture them <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to do it. So. Similarly, if uh, if you want yourself to like march up a mountain or something, it's easier to just like make yourself continue than if you want to do some intellectual work that you don't feel like. <laughs> it's harder to just like right. force yourself with some threat to right. So that you know that's a modestly positive sign. <laughs> yeah. But this is all related to the work versus play. Um, mm. You know, in the sense that many of our fears of hell are work health, and it's okay. interesting to think about the lack of play health. Mm. and the lack of work heavens and the existence of play heavens. So if we think about hells and heavens and work and play, yeah. again, I think we see much more play heaven, work hell. Mm. <laughs> but it's worth pausing to fill out the rest of the quadrants <laughs> yep. and, and think about what those would look like. Don't tell me about play hell. <laughs> well, play hell, for example, is uh, someone who uh, feels romantically inclined but is rejected <laughs> by the people around them, and they, they are they are... They have the freedom to attract anybody they want, and they simply can't, right? Okay. Somebody who is simply completely unpopular, or at least temporarily, like in divorce. I mean, divorce is something that happens in play, in some sense, hmm. okay. right? Or, or, or romantic rejection, or betrayal, even. Okay. Those are play hells. They can go badly. <laughs> can go very, I mean, because there is, in fact, a lot at stake, because mating and friendships matter a lot to us, yep. even if we act most during play as if hardly anything's at stake. Big things are at stake, so big things can go wrong. Yep. So we can become friendless, our children can hate us, our, our lovers can leave us and betray us. These are all, you know, pretty bad things. These are play health. Yeah. And they are arguably comparable to work health <laughs> yeah. in terms of their psychological <laughs> impact. But people, there's, there are f much fewer charities devoted to play health. There mm -hmm. are charities devoted to work health or health health, right? So people, if you had a really, if you, if you, you know, somebody was saying, well, there's these mine workers in Chile and they are miserable, we want to go help the mine workers, you could get a charity for that. Of course, farmers in Africa, they need some help there, they work from dusk to dawn, or, or the, the coffee pickers, you know, we want to have fair trade so we don't have miserable coffee pickers, but, you know, but if you have somebody... It seems like there are a lot of things that aren't clearly within work or play which is where a lot of charity goes, and like to things like sickness. education, and, yeah, sickness. Right. And you're you're sick whether you want to be working or playing, and neither is happening. That's um, true. Although sort of people tend to get sick days from work and not from play. Well, <laughs> well it's less organized. They don't need them yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they have sick days from play. They just don't need, like call in. And okay, that's that's a fair point. But still, <laughs> if we go to the other extreme, there's work heaven, of course, yes. and so that's you know we do have some of that for sort of our. We have biopics of musicians, say, and their struggle up, and then their triumphant, you know, being a successful musician or a successful actor or a successful athlete or dancer, right? These yeah. biopics of successful 
people are often people who are, but they're often people very successful at something many other people do as play. Right. So they're they are um, they're work only half a work heaven in the sense that they aren't really about the thing most of us think is work. Right. So Zojiro Dreams of Sushi is more of an interesting work heaven yep. story. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting that we find that hard to even accept at some level that you could be, especially if it's not something other people would do for fun. Mm -hmm. I wish I'd seen this movie. It doesn't seem <laughs> that hard to accept. Uh, uh, it seems like there's commonly the you know, idea of flow or whatever. Right. People just get really into anything. Yeah. Right, but so, but that idea that you know, a, a, a nation or society of people who are working a lot, or a profession of people who are working a lot, could be you know nearly heaven. Could be you know even better than another society of people watching TV all day. Wait, you does know, that seem surprising to many people? I think, or you know, at least mm -hmm. as an ideal future, or an ideal world, or something like that. Because watching TV all the time doesn't seem very <laughs> ideal. But if <laughs> right, or hanging out, chatting with your friends all day, or something. Right. Doing too much of either thing seems uh, bad, usually, I think. I mean, like, if you think of a life that entirely involves hanging out with your friends chatting, <laughs> it seems kind of dirty somehow, you know? <laughs> but at the time, it's fun. <laughs> right. Even after a week of chatting with your friends, you think, wow, I got to chat with my friends all week. That was yeah, a great yeah, vacation sure. week. Yeah, you can even do it for a month or so. <laughs> yeah, at some point. Hypothetically. Hypothetically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we're getting to the end of our time. We are. I have uh, one. We thought of various puzzles. And, and facts. Well, it's a, I mean, you know, I think we just continue to ponder it. I guess one connected thing <laughs> I wanted to throw in yeah. was this uh, Charles Murray book's Coming Apart, which only studied the U.S., but I expect similar things happen in other developed countries where the upper and lower classes in the United States have separated in part on their willingness to work. That is, you know, so the upper classes work a lot of hours as much as their ancestors, you know, their, their parents and grandparents did. They get married just as much, they go to church just as much, but the lower classes have separated in the sense of they work less, they marry less, they church less. And so, you know, in many ways it looks like a move to play hmm. for the lower class, but not so much for the upper class. So uh, that's an interesting separation in the work-play mapping. There's a mapping of class mapping between work and play there as well. So it's interesting because other times you have said that... Um, that the rich people are more like foragers, and becoming richer makes Well, rich societies are rich more like, societies foragers, are more like foragers. foragers. Rich people, it's less clear because of this class separation. So it does right. seem like that as the society gets richer, it goes more in the forager play direction. Okay. But like in, in ancient times, uh, the elites have been more forager-like, right? Elite cultures. <laughs> Which is different than elite people oh, within I thought, a culture. You, I thought you meant the elite people within a well, culture. Well, often, well, but often there's elite subcultures. So, oh, okay. so like within you know ancient Greece, yeah. uh, ancient Greece became an elite culture because it had a lot, it won a lot of wars and brought in a lot of slaves, and then basically all the Greeks could be rich. Right. <laughs> and then within that Greek culture, they had more of a you know fewer children, less work, okay. uh, more art. You but know, still, more. still, you think like the richer people within that society would have been more. More hardworking, maybe. Yeah. yeah, that would be my guess. Okay. So, um, so, so there's a separation in the sense that um, as we get richer, overall society, you know, says, "Hey, I don't need to work so hard. Why, why work so hard? Right. <laughs> you know, I can do okay <laughs> yeah. with you know playing video games and watching some movies, and I don't need fancy stuff. So why not work fewer hours and enjoy myself? And then, hey, if I don't like this person I'm married to, why stick with them? I can afford to split off. Yes, I won't have as much, but it's not like I'm going to starve." And so okay. there's more divorce, there's more, less work, there's more, you know. Makes sense. Right, but then 
for an upper class, it's not true. And so and many of the, if many of the, uh, our listeners are upper class folks, they might <laughs> notice that, you know, in fact, a lot of their friends work really hard, <laughs> put in a lot of hours, uh, and they're, you know, and they really are into work, and they might, you know, find it hard to understand that a lot of people think work's not so great. Hmm. Elsewhere um, in the society. Yeah. Hey, do you think the causality goes in the direction where if you work, if you continue to work hard and stuff, then you remain a higher class? Yeah. Just because you have more money and uh, have more uh, achievements if you go well, to work instead of... Causality probably goes both ways. That, you know, if you have some inclination in you that makes you just willing to work, then, then you will like get better jobs, you will, you will impress people better, you will sort better into higher class cultures, but then that culture will reaffirm that, it will set it up as a higher status thing, and yeah. you will get more praise from that. You know, so there's a standard story that in many uh, lower class cultures, uh, hard work is, is, is made fun of, or right. you know, like doing really well at school is seen as betraying of, <laughs> of your culture, or, or you know, doing what the man tells you, or not you know, enjoying yeah. yourself, or not you know, fulfilling your spontaneous feeling, etc. Right. You know, whereas <laughs> in upper class cultures, there's more of a respect for work, yes. um, and there's more of a more more status is, is laid on what you do at work. More high-class jobs are less like listening to the man and doing exactly what you're told. So. That's true. That's true. So, so that's related to sort of dominant submission, which is, uh, w you know, another comment that's worth ma making and noticing about work and play yeah. is that for foragers have this strong aversion to dominance and bragging and, and giving of orders and, okay. and submitting, uh, at least overtly. Yeah. And because in our industrial world, we need, we, our work is arranged to have a lot of that happen, we feel especially averse to work because it work violates these forger norms right. against dominance. Uh, and so work, workers who can work without, in contexts where they don't have to suffer that overt violation of the dominance <laughs> norms, can more accept work and find work comfortable right. and fulfilling even than workers who have to uh, accept the dominance. Of course, it's also true that you know in many places, the reason why strong dom overt dominance has to happen is because if you try to appeal to people's professional ethic or norms, they will just try to get away with doing as little work as they can. Yeah. <laughs> so there's this cultural support for work right. inter inter interacts and produces more yeah. over dominance, which then produces a resentment against work and yeah. a rejection of work. Hmm. Is, that, is it just sort of uh, random that it's sort of gone more one way in some places and more the other way in other places? Like that I was saying that higher status jobs tend to be more uh, free. Well, I mean, higher status people tend to, I mean, higher status jobs tend to be the dominant person. I mean, when somebody's <laughs> giving order, it tends to be a higher status person. So uh, that's an obvious direction it would go. And then, of course, a lot of more higher status jobs are more jobs where, uh, you, you know, you can do something by yourself for a while without needing to tightly coordinate. I mean, the jobs we have that are the most tightly coordinated are often jobs that are more stressful, you know, a factory floor, a trucking line, things like that. Um, so, all right. <laughs> anyway, this has been an enjoyable uh, discussion about play with uh, my co now co-blogger, <laughs> Grace. And I guess we'll do another occasional podcast series again sometimes. <laughs> all right.